You're listening to Truly Criminal, the home of true crime. To see the video version of this case, including the footage and photos, you can find us on YouTube. Just search for Truly Criminal. Today's case takes us to Jackson, Michigan. In 2014, it was home to 28-year-old Frances Marie Craig. Known to everyone as Franny, her friends called her a firecracker. With an infectious laugh and a great sense of humour, she made friends quickly, was easygoing and easy to talk to. People said they met her and instantly felt like they'd known her for years. She would do anything she could for anyone she met, and the amount of good things people had to say about her was in abundance. As the mother of two young girls, aged five and three, and holding down two jobs, it's safe to say there was never a slow day. Her friends said she always loved the idea of being married. She was talking about her wedding before she even met someone. But this all changed in 2012. After splitting from her children's father, she found love with 29-year-old Eric Wolf. He was divorced and had a young daughter too, Alexis, and they all got on straight away. Two years later, the family started living together, and when Eric proposed, Franny was on cloud nine and got stuck into planning right away. One of her friends said she was quite comical when planning her wedding. She even started calling herself a bridezilla. Her wedding was just one month away and the couple had bought a house for their new family and Franny had big plans for her future. August 10th, 2014. At around 6.30am, Eric arrived home from his 12-hour night shift and fell asleep downstairs. A few hours later, his daughter ran down and frantically woke him up. She had made a frightening discovery in the bedroom. She had walked in to find Franny on the floor, and she was cold to the touch. Yeah, you have somebody up to my house right now. There's my fiance. I think she's dead. Okay, where has she been sick? No, there's blood everywhere. Do you know where it's coming from? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, can you tell she's breathing? She's not. She's cold. She's dead. The children were quickly removed from the house and everything was taped off. Her friends started gathering outside the house, all of them thinking it was just a misunderstanding, or a sick lie that had spread and got out of control. The scene upstairs was brutal, and shocked even the most tenured of detectives. Franny had been stabbed 90 times. She was lying in between the bed and the wall, with two cable ties around each wrist. This indicated to police that she had been tied to the bed and restrained before being cut loose. Authorities said it was nothing short of overkill and blind rage on the killer's part. Her smashed phone was found outside, metres from the house. It had either been dropped by the killer or killers on the way out, or it had been thrown against the tree with the intent of breaking it. Her death was obviously quickly ruled as a homicide, but the way she was killed was withheld from the public. In fact, 
Few details were released to the media. And the police were keeping everything very close to their chests. Evidence, including the cable ties, were sent to the Michigan State Police Crime Lab. Naturally, police started with the people closest to her, and that meant an interview with her fiancé, Eric. What he said concerned and confused them straight away. I came home this morning because I worked 6 p.m. to 6 Mm a.m. I went upstairs, I checked both the girls' room before going in uh, our bedroom. Did you see anything on the mattress when you first came in? I guess I might have saw that streak. I thought maybe she had been drinking or something because she was in like almost like a funny position on the floor, which she doesn't drink hardly ever. I knew better than to wake her. I know from prior experience whenever I've woken her up, she's not a morning person and I get yelled at. Officer said he didn't seem surprised, angry or upset. As the interview drew to a close, Eric said something else that raised concern. Up until just now, maybe since we've been here, I thought that if it wasn't an accident, then it was probably self-induced. You mean suicide? Yeah. And the only reason I say self-induced is just because of how high-strung everything is right before this wedding. and It's a lot of stress. Yeah. Another very odd comment to make, they thought. The security records at his workplace showed that Eric was clocked in until 6.30am, but not every exit in the building was covered by cameras, leading investigators to wonder if Eric could have snuck out and got back in undetected. Franny's friends also said that as happy as they were for her that she was getting married, something she had wanted for years... They weren't too sure about Eric being the one. Some even started looking at him straight away, thinking he had to have been behind it. Eric denied having anything at all to do with the death of his fiancée. He said he was devastated and struggling to process it. Did you? No. No what? No, I didn't do this. I didn't know anything about it. I walked in and I walked out, went to sleep, got up, went back in and reported it. But that brings me back to the questions we just asked. You made it at least halfway into that bed. I did make it, and I admit that, and I'll admit that in front of whoever needs to hear it. But I want to make that perfectly clear that my stance on this is exactly what I said. I went in for whatever reason it was. I didn't react. But given the nature of the crime and the fact the police weren't sure... Franny's daughters and Eric's daughter were temporarily placed in the custody of other family members. Friday, August 15th, was a particularly tough day for everyone, as it would have been Franny's 29th birthday, and all that was on everyone's minds was what had happened five days before. Her co-workers spent the day pooling all their tips to help pay for the funeral costs. Franny had no enemies, held no grudges, and everyone she knew was in agreement that there was simply nobody that would have ever wanted to hurt her, let alone do something like this. Authorities then started looking at her place of work and wondered if something had happened there. It came to their attention that one day as she was on shift, 
She had spotted some young shoplifters and confronted them, but their mother quickly turned on Franny and attacked her. This left her with physical injuries and a lot of emotional trauma. The woman was charged and convicted, so her record made her easy to find. But she had an alibi and was simply nothing to do with it. Police then spoke to an old boyfriend who had just moved back into the area, but he too had no information to offer them. A former roommate of the couple called Ryan gave a statement too, and in his interview, he vouched for Eric's character, telling them he was a great guy and he didn't see any problems within the couple's relationship. With this, police had now all but exhausted their options, and they knew that everything was resting on the forensics. But that would take time. The primary person of interest was still Eric, and they carried on trying to piece everything together. A funeral for Franny was held, and there was a huge turnout. The prosecutor said even her mail carrier showed up to her funeral because she made such an impact on that person. That's how loved Francis Craig was. There was still a sense of unease hanging over the community. Her killer was still out there, and everyone was looking over their shoulders. It was now three months later, and the evidence from the crime scene had finally all been processed, and with this, the investigation took a new turn, a turn that nobody saw coming. On the cable ties, they found DNA, but it was not Eric's, and it was not from any of the people they had already questioned. It actually matched a convicted murderer, and his name was Cortez Butler, currently out on parole after serving 25 years for second-degree murder. Authorities were dumbfounded. As far as they could tell, 43-year-old Cortez had no link to Franny at all. He didn't live anywhere near the area. He had never worked with her. There was simply no connection. Police didn't know if it was something as simple as Cortez working somewhere with the cable ties potentially in a warehouse or somewhere similar, or if it was something far darker, like Eric or someone else hiring Cortez to carry out the murder. Cortez's parole officer was tracked down, and through him they obtained his phone records. His phone records showed a lot of contact with two other people, Rodney and Clifford McKee. Rodney was a well-known heroin dealer with a long list of convictions and his uncle Clifford had served 20 years for murder. Police located Cortez in custody as he had actually just been arrested for yet another murder. 79-year-old Charles Graham was killed following a dispute over pills and money and Cortez had been charged in connection. To everyone's surprise, when they started asking him about Franny, He didn't try to lie or deny. He said he knew all about her, admitted to being her killer, and agreed to tell them everything, as long as the interview was not taped. Police were desperate for answers, and they agreed, knowing it was a high-risk strategy, as it might not be admissible in court. Detectives asked him outright if Eric Wolfe was behind it all, but Cortez said Eric had nothing to do with anything the man at the centre of it was Rodney McKee. 
What investigators started to uncover would point to a shocking and twisted scheme, a plot that had began just a few months before Franny was killed. It all started back in March 2014. A Jackson apartment was set on fire, and police quickly arrested Rodney for it. He was charged with arson and carrying a concealed weapon. He had started the fire to get at a lady named Donna when she refused to sell drugs for him. Donna and her son were left homeless when everything had burned down. And Donna's son turned out to be Ryan, the former roommate of Franny and Eric, who had already spoken to the police. Ryan hadn't stayed with them long, moving out just a short while later. And in June 2014, Franny and Eric finally found their perfect home and set about moving themselves. But before his arson trial... Rodney contacted his Uncle Clifford. He wanted to find out where Ryan now lived, and, as he was a witness to the arson, kill him. Clifford contacted Cortez Butler, whom he had met in prison, and offered him $10,000 for the hit. But the only address they had for Ryan was Franny and Eric's. Cortez said he had entered the home through the unlocked garage door. He crept upstairs, pausing briefly to notice that the children were asleep in their rooms. He then found Franny asleep in her bed. He bound her with the cable ties and covered her eyes. He asked where Ryan was, and she said she had no idea. He then stabbed her at least 20 times in the neck before continuing his violent attack. The prosecutor said Franny was the very definition of collateral damage, and she was as innocent a victim as anyone could possibly be. It was also terrifying for Ryan that someone had gone to such horrific lengths to silence him and he had almost lost his life too. Even after killing Franny, the wrong person, the trio weren't deterred from trying to get to Ryan. They all continued to stalk him, but fortunately, Cortez was arrested before anything happened to Ryan. On September 1st, 2015, Cortez Butler pled no contest to second-degree murder and was sentenced to 25 to 40 years in prison in Charles Graham's killing. And, one month later, Cortez, Rodney and Clifford were all charged with open murder, conspiracy to commit murder in the first degree and first-degree home invasion. Open murder means a combination of both first- and second-degree murder and gives the jury the chance to determine the appropriate degree based on the evidence presented. The McKees were also charged with soliciting murder. Francis Craig, Ontario, MCL 750.316. This is a felony, life, even taken upon arrest. Number four, home invasion, first degree, to break and enter or to enter without permission of dwelling located 5220 Timbercrest Trail and while entering President or X110, parent A, parent 2, felony. 20 years and or $5,000. Fortunately for the prosecution, the officers that listened to Cortez's statement off the record were allowed to talk about it in court. Phone records put Clifford and Cortez together in the Jackson area at the time of the murder, and they had contacted each other more than 200 times in the day surrounding it. More than 8,000 pages of phone records were gone through. At the trial... Cortez laughed and smiled at the cameras and bragged about the crimes he had committed on the stand. 
But when he was asked about Franny, suddenly it was nothing but denial. The prosecution said he wanted to run the show and keep hold of that power for as long as he could. 27-year-old Rodney McKee, 49-year-old Clifford McKee and 43-year-old Cortez Butler were all found guilty of murder in the first degree, conspiracy to commit murder in the first degree and first-degree home invasion. The McKees were also found guilty of soliciting murder. in the murder for hire case in Jackson will be sentenced today. Cortez Butler, Rodney McKee and Clifford McKee have all been found guilty of first degree murder and the stabbing death of Francis Craig in 2014. Butler was also convicted of home invasion and the McKees were convicted of conspiracy and solicitation of murder. Clifford McKee hired Butler to kill a Jackson man who witnessed his nephew Rodney McKee commit arson. Butler thought the witness lived with Francis Craig and her fiance Eric Wolf and broke into their home. He then tied up Francis Craig and stabbed her. All three men face life in prison without parole. They were all sentenced to life in prison. Clifford McKee refused to attend the sentencing and Franny's mom Robin spoke directly to them in her statement. 360 days is all the time that these two, minus the one that didn't have the balls to come here today, chose for us to have our daughter. As of August 10th, 2014, our lives have never been the same, nor will they ever be again. You took from our family the most precious, beautiful person in the world. Frances was our everything. Losing her is the most excruciating pain you have to endure. We have to wake up every morning knowing that there never be another phone call, another conversation. We will never hear her laugh again or see her beautiful smile. Every holiday there will always be an empty chair. The last night of her life she took her children to the fair, something she loved to do. She took them home and put them to bed because she had to work the next day. Little did she know that would be the last hug and kiss she would ever get from them. She was in her house. And if you're not safe there, you're not safe anywhere. You went in there and did what you did. You left our only child on the floor to let her innocent little babies find her the next day. You left us with the task of explaining to them why they no longer have a mother and how there's bad people in the world and they hurt their mommy. We had to explain to them how Graham and Grandpa are gonna make sure the bad guys go away who did this to them. We had to force ourselves to look at the pictures of what you did to our daughter so we could relate to the pain and sorrow that they had to endure. We can't reach inside their heads and help them understand and take the pain away, especially when we can't make our own go away. This unholy trinity is is as evil a group of individuals as I have seen. I dare say that all of us in our career have yet to see this level of evil, could work for the rest of our careers and could work for yet another career beyond that and not see this level of evil. I never imagined 
I would stand in front of you or any judge and ask you to sentence somebody for his third murder conviction and somebody else in the same group for his second. I still can't believe I'm standing here doing this. And although it sounds really odd to say, and I haven't quite figured out the right way to say it, in a very odd way, I'm certainly not grateful for what happened to Franny and what has happened to her family, but I am grateful that they, that they came here to Jackson County to have Jackson County law enforcement rally behind their crime. The prosecutor said, I wish I had known her, and I hope I honoured her in the handling of this case, something which everyone agreed she very much did. All three men challenged their sentences. The Michigan Court of Appeals has decided to uphold murder convictions against three men who killed a Jackson County woman as part of a botched murder-for-hire plot. Jackson County Prosecutor Jerry Jarzinka says the men will most likely appeal to the state Supreme Court. In 2020, the Michigan Supreme Court agreed to hear the appeals for Clifford and Rodney. Which is People versus Clifford and Rodney McKee. Um, Mr. Halpern and Ms. Sharon, I assume you have sorted out how you will use your time. Um, each side has 20 minutes, and you all may attempt to reserve some of that, but I will let you um, proceed in whatever way you've decided to proceed. And these are now underway with them. In 2022, the lawyers for Rodney and Clifford put forth the arguments for a new trial but there is currently no update regarding the outcome of this. Cortez Butler also appealed to the Supreme Court, but this was denied straight away. It was a series of events that left everyone shocked and horrified. Frances Craig's future was bright, and she had everything she had ever dreamed of. Her life was so cruelly snatched away, all because one callous individual went to the most extreme lengths to try and avoid being caught for yet more heinous crimes. An amazing mother, daughter, sister, fiancé, friend and colleague, she is missed dearly and a huge gap will always be present in the community she once called home.